3: we carried a a replica H-bomb through the streets of Manchester (laughs) for like all afternoon and we were trying to get arrested. It was just absurd. We didn't want to follow Hendrix and actually Hendrix didn't want to follow us to be honest. Uh, So we ended up, the move closed the first half and and Hendrix closed the second half. Out of the Blue, that was a follow-up to New World Record I think and the idea as, as far as I know we were just going to make another album but Jeff just couldn't stop writing great songs, and and it ended up a double album, and probably the best album that we ever made.
0: Hello and welcome to episode 40 of Vintage Rock Pod, the ultimate classic rock podcast that proudly claims that my music is better than yours. I'm Paul Stevenson, thanks as always for hitting play. Now on this week's show... I've got another Rock and Roll Hall of Famer. The ninth Hall of Famer of the series so far. And a little spoiler alert, I've got another one lined up for you in another couple of weeks' time too. But to today's guest then, wow, what a career he's had, spanning more than 50 years. He began life in a band that supported both the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. He moved, if you get the pun, to a Midlands supergroup that had phenomenal success, including a number one record, having their song played as the first song on BBC Radio 1 when it launched, and being taken to court by the British Prime Minister. The band then evolved into another group, which, in a ten year span, went on to have more hit singles in the UK and US than any other band on the planet. Oh, And then he joined Black Sabbath too, not to mention having worked with legends like Paul Weller, Mark Bolan, Robert Plant, Phil Linnett and many more. My guest, inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2017 with the amazing Electric Light Orchestra, is drummer supremo Bev Bevan. Honestly, it's one heck of a career and we get to hear some of his stories from his career throughout the interview as well. Now, quickly before that, if this is the first time you've listened to Vintage Rock Pod, then please do go and check out some of the other big interviews from throughout the series. I speak with rock stars of all varieties, mods, punks, prog rockers, hair metal, radio rock, basically all types of rock stars that made it big in the 60s, 70s and 80s. And they all tell some incredible stories. Even those artists that you may look at and maybe you don't know much about or you don't think much of the band, they can sometimes be the best ones, I tell you. Anyway, another quick mention as well if you use Spotify, then there's a couple of special vintage Rock Pod playlists on there for you to follow too. The first being set up by a listener, Paul Graham. Search for Vintage Rock Pod Top Fives, and he's put together a playlist where he updates all the top five song recommendations that I select from throughout the entire series. The other playlist is a very special one. It's unique. It's created from songs chosen by the massive big-name guests themselves. Now, I ask all the rock stars that I speak to to nominate a song from their own back catalogues to go onto this playlist, and you can see all the incredible groups and songs on there chosen by those artists themselves. It's unlike any other playlist you'll get anywhere. So, to see all those, search for Vintage Rock Pod Artist's Choice. Both of those playlists are on Spotify right with that out of the way let's get on to today's guest then drummer with hit the move worldwide superstars elo and metal gods black sabbath and he's joined by his new bandmate joy strackenbrain from quill in this interview so please enjoy my chat with bev bevan I'm delighted to be joined on the Vintage Rock Pod by a rock and roll hall of famer with a career going strong for more than 50 years, more than 50 million record sales worldwide as well. Been part of legendary groups, The Move, ELO, Black Sabbath. He's worked with legends like Paul Weller, Mark Boland, Jules Holland, Phil Linnett, Robert Plant, the Everly Brothers. I could go on. I really could. I just want to say thank you for joining me here on Vintage Rock Pod. Bev Bevan, how are you, Bev?
3: Oh, very well. Thank you. Yeah. Enjoying coming out of the, uh, the the pandemic, getting back on the road. It's it's been a long time coming.
0: Absolutely has, and alongside you, uh, I've got to mention as well your your current bandmate in Quill, uh, Joy, with us. Hi, Joy. How are you? Hi, Paul.
1: Good to be here.
0: Lovely. Now, you guys have got a, a brand new album come out, haven't you, with the, with the band Quill? And we'll get to that shortly. But here on Vintage Rock Pod, Classic Rock Stories, we like to hear the tales from 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 back in the day. So, Bev, I'm going to take you right back to, to, to some of these memories that you're going to have to drag up for us now. And we'll go back to near the beginning then, shall we, with... Uh, Denny Lane, um, your first taste of kind of real success and in the, in the spotlight and things like that with them. But can you tell me about um, supporting the Beatles and the Stones? I mean, do you remember those kind of the shows that you did, uh, supporting those acts?
3: Yeah, well, I don't think you're ever going to forget anything like that. Because, um, <laughs> my first ever left when I left school, my first professional band was it's called Denny Lane and the Diplomats. And we nearly made it. We did well. Uh, we got a record deal. Um, with Tony Hatch of Pi Records uh, but his bosses at the time this would have been 63 told him because uh, he'd got another band that was, he was very interested in it, and he had to make the decision between signing Denny Lane and the Diplomats or this other band and this other band turned out to be the Surgers so <laughs> he probably made the right choice in any in, in uh, and then I suppose the highlight of uh, uh, Danny Lane and the Diplomats' um live work, we um, we opened for the Rolling Stones at Birmingham Town Hall, which was great. But the most memorable was indeed opening for the Beatles at a place called the Old Hill Plaza, uh, in the Midlands. And it was just mayhem, really. It was, it was Beatlemania. <laughs> I mean, you couldn't just, it was just screaming girls. But it was a fantastic experience and we met all the Beatles and they were really friendly guys. It was great.
0: Brilliant. Fantastic experience, indeed. Um, and then uh, then came The Move. I'm sorry for skipping on a little bit here, but your your career is incredible. Uh, then came The Move. And over here in the UK, I've got a big listenership over in America, but over here in the UK, The Move were, were huge. I mean, seven top 10 singles alone, a number one record with uh, Blackberry Way, Flowers in the Rain, first ever song played on Radio 1. It was a, an incredibly successful group and a lot of creativity within that group as well, wasn't it?
3: Yeah, I thought... Um... So when Denny Lane left to form the Moody Blues, um, I was looking for a new band and I I joined a band called Carl Wayne and the Vikings for just six months. But then um, Ace Kefford and Trevor Burton and Roy Wood asked me if I'd be interested in creating sort of a Birmingham supergroup. And then we got Carl Wayne involved as well. And that band um, in 66, 67, 68 was... I was so proud of the stuff we did and if you listen back to any particularly live recordings that um the move did we were such a tight band it was we were so well rehearsed had a great um image on stage we had a manager who mm-hmm. made us look good you know dressed <laughs> us in several suits and all that sort of <laughs> stuff and it was a and then it began to fall apart which is a shame ace keff had left then trevor And we carried on, but it was never quite as good. But there's some great, great records and live performances, which I'm, yeah. Very proud
0: of indeed, and you mentioned the manager there. I mean, Tony Secundo he was—he was one for for the extraordinary, wasn't he? He liked his publicity stunts, didn't he? And uh, one of the famous story of you having to give up all the royalties to Flowers in the Rain because of a stunt that he pulled off.
3: Yeah, he managed to upset Harold Wilson, the um, <laughs> the Prime Minister, of <laughs> the, the Prime day, Minister, <laughs> uh, by issuing a postcard that um was obviously libelous, and it went it went to court, and we lost the case unsurprisingly. <laughs> and to this day, we've never had any royalties for Flowers in the Rain uh, or the B-side, here we go around the lemon tree. And, and most unfairly is that my still good friend, I, I like to add, uh, Roy Wood, um, he wrote both those songs and he's never had any songwriting royalties, which is very unfair.
0: And was that something that that you guys, as the band, enjoyed doing these kind of crazy publicity stunts? Because I think at one one point you you signed a, your contract on the back of a, a topless model as well, and all that sort of crazy stuff was going on, being paraded around the streets and stuff. I Me, mean, did you guys enjoy that, or was that completely out of your comfort zone?
3: It- Some of us enjoyed it more than others. I mean, we we carried a a replica (laughs) H-bomb through the streets of Manchester for, like, all afternoon, and we were trying to get arrested. It was just absurd. And the police eventually just moved us on. We made out that we'd been arrested and everything. And they were crazy stunts. But some of them, yeah, were fun, sure. Uh, And the more rebellious ones amongst us. I mean, Roy was always a very um, shy sort of person, really, and he he hated all that Mm -hmm. stuff.
0: There you go. Um, and then uh, we have to mention the tour as well. It's famous now. There's posters that get replicated and people have them on the walls and things like that. The the famous Jimi Hendrix, the move, the nice, the Pink Floyd. I mean, that's one heck of a package tour, isn't it?
3: That was an amazing package tour. It really was. Yeah. Um, we didn't want to follow Hendrix and actually Hendrix didn't want to follow us, to be honest. <laughs> uh, so we ended up, We the, the move closed the first half and, and Hendrix closed the second half, but as you said, the you know the nice one there, and Outer Limits, uh, Pink Floyd, um, and Amen Corner, uh, and now we're featuring Andy Fairweather Low, um, who after all these years uh, is on the new Quill album as a guest singer. So yeah. it's great that we've kept in touch over all these years.
0: Things go full circle, don't they? Um, and then from, from the move came ELO, but there was a bit of a crossover, wasn't there? And at one stage, you had records in, in the charts at the same time. It was a bit of a, a strange one, wasn't it? Yeah,
3: I don't know whether that was a, a, a unique happening or not, whether, or if anyone else has ever had that. But yeah, uh, in the charts, I think it was 72, uh, we had um, California Man, was a big hit uh, for the move, and one of five Over overture was a was a big hit for, for ELO. So we, we really had come to a crossroads and we had to choose which way we were going to go. But it was a bit of a no-brainer because Jeff Lynne had only joined the move mm-hmm. um so we could finish our contractual obligations, uh, do another album and a couple of singles. But the whole idea was to form a new band. Uh, and that's obviously what we did
0: with ELO. Absolutely, and then they were massively successful. You guys, sorry, were, were massively successful with with ELO. I mean, between seventy two and eighty six, you had more top forty hits in the UK and US than any other band on the planet. I mean, that's just staggering to think of. And it was it was kind of the album Eldorado, wasn't it, that that pushed you firstly into that huge stratospheric point, especially in America.
3: Absolutely. We the one thing that we where the move went wrong is that we never went to America. Mm-hmm. We did in 1969, like a three-week tour, but we were way past our best. Um, we should have gone, you know, in '67, like you know, along with, like the Who did, and like and Hendrix went back there and Cream, uh, and I think we'd have we'd have, been, we'd have done well. But anyway, that we'll never know that. So we we made a point of concentrating on America, and you're absolutely right. The first gold album was El Dorado which wasn't a hit in, mm-hmm. in the UK. And our first major hit in America was a, a, a great Jeff Lynne song called Can't Get It Out of My Head, uh, w- which again was not a hit in the UK. Uh, but Jeff just got better and better really as a songwriter and producer. And um, it, it, as you just said, it was pretty pretty staggering list of hits
0: there. <laughs> and you mentioned Jeff getting better and better there. Um, when you look at, the, the, the records that, that you guys put out, I mean, Face the Music followed, a New World record, that sort of thing. You're finding yourselves as, as one of the biggest bands on the planet. Did Jeff have um, any pressure or did he struggle with writing stuff like that? Or did it just come quite naturally to him?
3: I, I think he was definitely under, under pressure to write new songs and, um, and new albums. Uh, and we used to, we based ourselves in, in Musicland Studios in Munich, uh, which Queen later later used, uh, and it was Donna Summer's studio too. <laughs> and we just spent weeks and weeks there, but Jeff loved recording. Um, and out of the blue, I, I, that was a follow-up to New World Record, I think. Yeah. Uh, and the idea, as, as far as I know, we were just going to make another album, but Jeff just couldn't stop writing great songs, <laughs> and, and it ended up a double album and, and probably the best album that we ever made.
0: And what was your reaction when you first heard what he'd come up with for, for that record, Out of the Blue? Because, like you said, that was phenomenal, 10 million-plus record sales and platinum all over the world.
3: It, it, we, it was such a layered process. You know, Jeff would just bring a song and play us the tune, and very often there the weren't even any lyrics or just a couple. Okay. So, And then we I started by putting a, a fairly simple drum track down because I, I used to double-track the drums, which is why I got it's quite a unique sound and and then we put on the bass and, and, and keyboards and guitar and, and maybe violin solo and probably more and more keyboards and then a massive orchestra so you know from a tiny acorn <laughs> came this oak tree yeah
0: <laughs> massive oak tree which sold millions i mean look looking behind you on the wall there you've got um discs and, and records and things like that are they all elo discs and things
3: yes they they're mainly elo um albums and singles which you can't see there's one of Jasper Carrot's funky moped up there <laughs> Gosh, yes because <So, laughs> I was on that funky moped
0: um, <laughs> uh,
3: but yeah and there's and there's some quill stuff up here too and uh yeah oh, yeah. So, yeah it's a it's a lovely it's a music room yeah
0: Yeah, it looks phenomenal. And just quickly mentioning Jasper there, because he's phenomenally successful here in the UK, especially, but uh, a very good friend of yours since you were children.
3: Yeah, we went to school together. Uh, We met on our first day at Moseley Grammar School in Birmingham and actually sat next to each other at school. (laughs) And um, yeah, we're still good good pals today. and I still work with his his stand-up and rock tour that's uh, out at the moment.
0: Phenomenal stuff. Um, And then just talking about music in general, I mean, everyone talks about London, they talk about the Liverpool scene, but there was a a hub in the Midlands as well, wasn't there? I spoke to Bob Catley, I think it was just last year, and he was talking about the the, the rum runner days where you'd have Jeff going down or Tony or Geezer, or Ozzy or whatever, and there'd be these big parties there afterwards with Magnum Boys and things like that. I mean, what was that whole scene in in the Midlands like? Because there's some phenomenal musicians have come out of that area.
3: Yeah, indeed. Um, Yeah, um, there used to be a place called Alex's Pie Stand in Birmingham where all the bands used to meet after their gigs. You know, you get about, you get like 50 group bands parked up and and we'd all talk together, you know, what songs are you doing, you know, um, uh, what you're wearing, you know. And and a lot of bands, band members flipped from one to the other and that's pretty much how the move came about. But, yeah, um, you know, the Spencer Davis group were one of the very first uh, to come along. Uh, and and, and, the, and the Fortunes, who went to the same school as me. and, and But then people like the Moody Blues came along were, were very, very successful. And actually, Quill was formed in... When were you formed? 72,
1: 73, yeah. Yep. yeah. A long time ago. I played the rum runner. <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> I saw, I saw the smile man. on your face.
0: Yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. I think... It's kind of underrated, really, the Birmingham scene. People have always gone about Liverpool and London, but I would think probably more successful bands have come out of the Birmingham area than, than anywhere else. No, I mean, I haven't even mentioned Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin. <laughs> <laughs> you <can't say>.
0: yeah. <laughs> well, you Just two little too. bands. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <Renterine>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You mentioned Black Sabbath. We have to mention them quickly. I mean, you, you joined them and you, you toured with them. You played a huge festival, Reading. You did an awful lot with them in the eighties. I mean, what was that like going from from ELO, more experimental, to the to the harder stuff of Black Sabbath? Did you enjoy that?
3: Yeah, very much because I, um, I was I was I, I was, all, I was the, the the loudest, heaviest drummer in in the, in the Midlands <laughs> until John Bonham <laughs> came along. Yeah. <laughs> and the, uh, he kind of overtook me, and, I, and we were really good pals, myself and, and John. Um, uh, we had a few adventures together, and um, <laughs> so when I joined Black, Black Sabbath, Tony Iommi asked me to, to to do the Born Again tour because Bill Ward had played on the album, but he wasn't sort of fit enough to do the tour. And a Black Sabbath tour is pretty grueling for the drummer, it's bloody hard work. Uh, and Tony's to this day he's probably well he is my best pal in the music business we're still great friends so um, I very much enjoyed my time with Sabbath yeah
0: Phenomenal you just mentioned in drummers there I mean I've spoke to Simon Kirk and Kenny Jones and all these sorts of people and Rick Lee, um, Roger L. Recently as well, Cosmo from Credence. I mean, there's something special about drummers. I love speaking to drummers because they see the music from a different side. Whereas, as, as fans, we see that the people at the front, whereas you guys are at the back, and you're keeping the tempo and you're keeping the pace. And I just, I love the fact that you guys get to witness music, especially on a on a stage, differently to everybody else.
3: Yeah, and t- it's it's a bit of a drummers union. I think but when we when you meet up, you tend. When we even going way back, you know, when we when we played with the Rolling Stones, I talked to Charlie Watts, you know, and and, and drummers do talk to drummers uh, because, and I find it even to this day when we do when I do rehearsals with the Bebop Beb Band uh, who were back Jasper or or with Quill and we're having a rehearsal and the musicians start to, well we'll take it from the B flat minor and I go. Okay, I've got no idea what they're talking about. But I seem to, I seem to, I seem to get on with it and do it.
0: <laughs> um, and now it's nice to, to bring Joy in. We talk about Van Quill. I mean, you've got a brand new album. It's coming out on the 29th of October. Um, Riding Rainbows, I've had a listen. It's fantastic. I like the diverseness of it all. Um,
1: it, it, you've
0: got seven members in the band. It, it, it's very good. that The sound's very different from track to track. And Is that something that you enjoy doing?
1: Very much so. I think the reason it became so diverse is because we wrote all the songs during the lockdown. So we got influenced by various things along the way. And of course, we had to record everything separately as well. I mean, Bev used to go on his own to the studio, but the rest of us worked from home. I did all my vocals up in the bedroom upstairs, you know. So, yes, it did sort of, um, it was quite a diverse album. And of course, getting special guests on as well, it takes it down a slightly different route but it's been a real labour of, labor of love and we're really excited about
0: it. Absolutely. And just mentioning the special guest there, I mean, how did each one of them come about? Was, did you approach these people? Did these uh, people approach you? I mean,
1: how did that work? Well, we're very fortunate because of Bev's history, he's got lots of friends in the industry and uh, <laughs> when we wrote a certain track we said that this would be a great duet and uh, the first one he mentioned was Chris Norman from Smokey and you go back quite a long way don't you and uh, he's such a great singer and when he put his part on we thought well, that's just put the icing on the cake on that track. And, and much the same with Andy. Andy Fairworth-A-Low um, had the song called Black Dog Day and it sort of needed something a bit quirky. And uh, when he put his part on, it was just a little bit of magic dust again, you know.
3: Yeah. Um, and John Lodge, the Moody Blues, you know, I've known a long time. And he it, 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 it was it was going to do a solo to a few years ago when he asked me if my band would back him. So, we, you know, we'd kept in touch and... I was sending him this track, and he did. He did put down the most beautiful um, bass, bass parts on, the, on that song. It
1: really makes it, really does.
3: Yeah, and again, you know, Andy Fairweather Low uh, from the old days, and and Lou Clark Jr. Luke his dad, Lou Clark, did all the those wonderful orchestral arrangements mm-hmm. on the ELO albums, and his son. Sadly, Lou died at the beginning of this year, but his son, Lou Clark Jr., uh, is definitely. Has inherited his dad's um, talent and he's, he's put some beautiful string parts on this
1: album very talented guy and a lovely lovely guy as well yeah and, and of course tony martin from black Sabbath he's doing a duet too so we've had some great guests really yeah great t- tony
3: guests. martin's I, I it's about 86 I went back to Sabbath and uh we we, we, we did a big stadium gig, and it, was, and it was Tony Martin's first ever show. And he was terrified, I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, was, he was in Athens, and, and it was a bit of a lively crowd, but he had good need to be. Uh, but <laughs> he's retained this fabulous voice, and, and he's put on a, a great performance as well on this album. And mm. we, we start to think about the next album now, so I'm going to call in, I've got, yeah. I've got to get in touch with Tony Iommi, Paul Carrick, yeah. um, Paul Weller. So yeah, I'll oh, be wow. putting in a few more favours.
0: Absolutely. And now um, with such diverse people, again, involved, great sounding tracks and everything, I- I've seen you say that it's probably the most enjoyable record you've produced since your ELO days, Bev. I mean, is that is that true?
3: Yeah, I, I love this album. I'm so proud of it. Um, the fact that Joy and I have written, um, along with our guitarist, uh, Lee Evans, we- we've written just pretty much all the songs. Uh, and... The performances on it, and we've got a great producer, Gargo Alan Caves. He's um, he's done a fabulous job, and I'm really really proud of this album. And I, I do believe it is the best album I've played on since Out of the Blue.
0: Yeah, fantastic stuff. It's got wonderful artwork as well. Look at Joy's face. Look,
1: well, yeah. (laughs) as well because it's my stepdaughter did the artwork oh um the actual drawing and painting yeah, yeah. and it was uh a guitarist uh wife lee lee evans um nicola nicola she did all the graphics so it's very much a homespun yeah, yeah. thing and it's lovely. Really
0: lovely. fantastic and as we said that's coming out at the end of october and what's the best way to to get hold of that
1: Well, they can pre-order. We can do it on iTunes Store um, in advance when it comes out and also from our website. May I give you the website details?
0: Of course, please do.
1: www.quilluk.com
0: And that's the best place to keep in touch with everything that's going on in the band and by the sounds of it an exciting another record coming as well after that with some more guests involved. So plenty to look forward to from you guys.
3: Yeah, absolutely. It's it's great that the industry is getting back on its feet. Yeah. And And especially... Uh, actually, I just I just played on a, a charity single too uh, with the Don Powell band called Let There Be Drums, oh. uh, with with I think it's twenty five drummers on it, uh, and all the pros need to go into the to the road crew. In the, uh, the old, Brilliant! Um, the, it's it's been bad enough for the musicians, but for the poor old road crew, mm. this last eighteen yeah. months has been dire. Mm. So it's great that it's getting we're out there, we're coming back.
1: Yeah. Well, we've we've also got a TV show. <laughs> Called Quill Connect, oh. <laughs> that Bev and I put together with Alan Caves, our producer, which is available on Facebook and YouTube. So if they want to check that out as well, we've got lots of lovely special guests on that and we play music. So Quill Connect.
3: Yeah. Yeah, we had Phil connect, Call on um, it. It was absolutely, it's worth watching just for yeah. 10 minutes of Phil Call. It's <laughs> hilarious. It's great.
0: <laughs> Brilliant. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you, Joy, and with you, Bev, as well. Thank okay, you too. So- good to meet you. There you go, the brilliant Bev Bevan there. I wouldn't mind having his contact book, I tell you. Now, if you'd like to check out his new band, although they're not a new band, if you know what I mean, they've been on the go since the 70s, then have a look for quilluk.com. It's the best place to do that. And details on the new album released later this month are all on there too. Now, just taking a look back at his career then... The Move, they were huge in the UK. They didn't really have the success they deserved in North America, but if you're listening from there, then definitely check them out. Bev was the drummer, of course. He was complimented by the genius of Roy Wood, who cruelly seems to be only remembered for Christmas songs these days. Uh, Anyway, The Move in the UK from 1967 for a five-year span scored 10 top 30 hits. Eight of those were top 10, and one of those, Blackberry Way, was number one. They really were a top band, so it's worth looking them up if you're not familiar with them. And look for some of the stories as well, because like we said, their manager was very notorious for things he made them do, and publicity stunts and all that sort of thing. Now, with Jeff Lynne joining the band, they changed to ELO. Roy Wood only lasted until the sessions for the second album before he left, and Jeff Lynne really became the driving force in the group. And I think when you look, it's really hard to believe just how big ELO became. They shifted more than 50 million albums worldwide, with a run of incredible platinum sellers, too many to mention. Now, between 1972 and 1986, in the UK alone, they had 27 top 40 hits. 15 of those went top 10, and the collaboration with Olivia Newton-John on Xanadu was a number one hit as well. So, with all that in mind, and regular listeners will know what comes next on the show, it makes my task all that harder to come up with my top five ELO songs. But that's what I've got to do. Now, remember, this is all highly subjective. It's a personal choice. This is me, me alone, not some judging panel. It's not meant as a definitive list. Merely my favourite songs. So, my favourite top five songs from Electric Light Orchestra, according to Vintage Rock Pod. At five is a track from the 1979 album Discovery. It's bright, upbeat, and bouncy, full of plenty different components, including a 40 piece orchestra, of course. And number five is Shine a Little Love. Number four is a little poppy. Okay, very poppy. Disco even, but it's a great tune. It's from the multi-platinum selling Out of the Blue. Number four is Sweet Talking Woman. Number three is from their fifth studio album, Face the Music. Lynn reportedly claims that this was the quickest song he ever wrote, taking just 30 minutes, and it became the group's first worldwide smash single, going top ten in the UK, US, Canada, Ireland and plenty of other countries too. And number three is Evil Woman. Number two is their big song, perhaps their signature tune, the song that seems to keep finding new leases of life, especially in big blockbuster movies. It's an incredible song from the album Out of the Blue. And number two is Mr. Blue Sky. Oh, Mr. Blue Sky, please tell
2: us why you had to...
0: And at number one for me is A Rousing Stomp, one of their harder songs, and their first hit not to include an orchestra. Jeff Lynn said he felt the album didn't have enough loud songs on it, so he wrote this as the last track. And wow, what a track it is, too. From the album Discovery, the number one electric light orchestra song, according to the Vintage Rock Pod, is Don't Bring Me Down. I'll tell you what's on There you go, my favourite five songs from ELO. As ever, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this list. Where do you agree? Where do you disagree? Drop me an email, vintagerockpod at gmail.com. You can also sign up to become a VRP VIP too. This is where you receive a newsletter that will land in your inbox at the very, very most once a week. It'll be full of info about the episodes before they get released, chances to win things, little stories from the world of Vintage Rock Pod, all that sort of stuff. Just go to my website, vintagerockpod.com, and sign up using the form on the first page there. Apologies for this week's newsletter. It's very, very short because I kind of ran out of time, but I've got some big news coming very, very soon. It's kind of bubbling away in the background that I'm hoping to let you all know next week. And you'll find out first if you're a VRP VIP. And please check out Vintage Rock Pod on the social media channels too. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, where I share short videos and clips and photos and get you involved and things like that. Also, YouTube too is where I post some of the video interviews that you can see the guests and me as we talk through all this sort of stuff. Just search for Vintage Rock Pod on all those platforms and you'll be able to find me. Give me a like, a follow, a subscribe or whatever. Just say hello. It would be great to hear from you. Well, that's it for this week's show then. There's going to be more big name guests to follow with rock and roll stories galore episodes are released each Monday if this is your first listen then please make sure to follow or subscribe on whatever podcast platform you're using right now so that you don't miss any of them coming up so until my next episode then remember if you come across anyone who isn't a fan of rock just tell them my music is better than yours take care